If you're paying attention at all to the political environment in the United States, it's likely that you don't think Congress is anything close to what you would call a high-performing organization, and you probably have some good reasons to think that way. But since early 2019, a group of 12 members of the U.S. House of Representatives, six Democrats and six Republicans, have truly been working together to fix Congress. It's called the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress. Representative Derek Kilmer from the state of Washington chairs that committee, and he joined us to talk about their work. We talked about the origins of the committee, the recommendations it has produced, and much more. Stay tuned for this wonderful conversation with U.S. Representative Derek Kilmer. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Representative Kilmer, welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. This is the first current political person that we've had. You know, we had Mike DeVilla on earlier, but... And John Kroger. And John Kroger, that's right. But I guess let's just start with um, this episode's about modernizing Congress. So let's. why do we need to modernize Congress? Well, I, I will start off by acknowledging that um, as a member of Congress, I'm part of an organization that, according to recent polling, is less popular than head lice, colonoscopies, and the rock band Nickelback. <laughs> and based on what you've seen over the last many years, you've got a pretty good sense of why that's the case. You've seen government shutdowns. You've seen bickering that often looks like it's a takeoff on the Jerry Springer show. And I think at this point, as an institution, Congress is punching below its weight. You know, my observation is most functional organizations do some introspection, the ones that do it well do it regularly, and try to figure out how they can improve their performance. In Congress, that happens about once every 20 or 30 years or so. So Congress will, about every 20 or 30 years, create a committee to look at the function of Congress. And that's uh, that's the committee I chair now, the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress, which makes us sound a little bit like the IT help desk, but, you know, really is focused on how do you have a Congress that functions better for the American people? And that's really our North Star and the work that our committee is doing. Fantastic. So whose idea was it to start this select committee? So about three years ago, you started to see some conversations a few months before the election to say, Right now, we don't know who's going to be in charge. And can we have some discussion around maybe changing some of the rules of this place so that it might function a little bit better? And you had Democrats and Republicans sitting down around a table saying, let's look at, yeah, at the beginning of each Congress, there's a rules package where you basically set the rules of the road. And we started identifying things that uh, should change. And interestingly enough, we would have these conversations and inevitably someone would mention something like, and we need to, you know, fix how Congress uses technology. And we would say, well, that's not really a rules thing. That's 
that's definitely a thing. Congress has been described as an 18th century institution using 20th century technology to solve 21st century problems. But uh, it's not really something that should go in the rules package. So we kind of put it in this sort of, you know, the player to be named later box, right? Uh, and then someone would say, well, you know, and we got to do something about staffing. You know, Congress is notorious for burning through staff and having a low rate of retention. And we all acknowledge, yeah, that's a thing that needs to be worked on, but probably not in the rules package. And we identified probably a dozen of those types of issues. At which point we said, so what, what should we do? You know, we had some good ideas around rules changes. And then we said, so what do we do with this package of things that also requires some analysis and hopefully some engagement? And we said, well, 30 years ago, there was a committee to fix Congress. And 20 years before that, there was a committee to fix Congress. And about 30 years before that, there was a committee to fix Congress. So what if we propose as part of the rules package, a committee to fix Congress? So that was really the genesis of this. Yeah. And so the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress started January 4th, 2019, for our listeners' uh, knowledge. Uh, what was it like getting that started, um, pulling that together and getting this this small team, essentially, uh, focused on the issues that you were trying to address? So it was interesting in part because if you look at the history of these select committees, they're not very successful. You know, if you look at modern history, the previous Congress, there had been a select committee on budget and appropriations process reform that passed zero recommendations. Before I got to Congress, there was the Super Committee on uh, Deficit and Debt Reduction. That committee passed zero recommendations. And so when we got assigned this task, uh, my initial thought was, how do we how do we do something different, right? Because if we can all acknowledge that things aren't things have not worked, then we got to do something a little bit different. And out of the gate, we decided some things that were very unusual for Congress. So generally, when you start up a committee in Congress, the committee gets its funding. And the first thing that happens is very simple math. You divide by two and Democrats get their half of the money and Republicans get their half of the money and Democrats take their half and they hire people with a Democratic background who put on blue jerseys and Republicans take their half of the money and they hire people with a Republican background who put on red jerseys. And then you spend the rest of the time fighting with each other. And I re I approached my Republican counterpart and said, so here's a crazy idea. What if we don't do that? What if we take these resources and we commit to each other that we'll hire a team, some of which will have a Democratic background and some of whom will have a Republican background but we'll have one team and they'll all put on fixed Congress jerseys. And to the credit of my Republican counterpart, Tom Graves at the time, now William Timmons uh, from South Carolina, in both instances, they said, sure, I'm game for that. And so immediately you kind of started the committee on a different pitch, right? Like it was, when you come to, to our committee, it feels a little different. We've also experimented with some things that are a little bit unusual for Congress. So 
I've never been part of any sort of functional organization that doesn't at the beginning of a process say, so what's our mission and what do we want to get done? And yet that's exceedingly rare in Congress. And so as an example, we had a bipartisan planning retreat where we took over a room at the Library of Congress and spent a day basically saying, what do we want to do with this committee? And actually, we started from a more simple place of, so why did you come to Congress? And how has it met or failed to meet your expectations? And that really unearthed, if you if you were fly on the wall in that room, you wouldn't have known who the Democrats were or who the Republicans were. But it really unearthed some things that our committee could get to work on together. And in the months and now in the years since the committee was established, we've also been doing things a little bit different just in terms of basic operations. Generally, if you watch C-SPAN, one, you have too much time on your hands. But if you watch C-SPAN, you'll find that in every committee in Congress, they sit on a dais. Democrats sit on one side, Republicans sit on the other. We decided not to do that. We wanted Democrats to sit next to Republicans and Republicans to sit next to Democrats. Because when you hear a witness say something insightful, your genetic tendency is to lean over to the person next to you and say, well, that's kind of interesting. What do you think of that? And we wanted it to be someone from the other party that you do that with. We've stopped sitting on a dais. We now sit around a round table because when you sit on the dais, you have two rows on our committee. I've never found that my best conversations happen with the back of someone's head. <laughs> and so we've We've tried to do some different things with this committee that may see, seem cosmetic, but I think really matter if you're going to have an approach that's focused on trying to get past the sort of tribal instincts of Congress, which really are among the most problematic things facing the institution. Yeah, I think that's so good. And and there's data to support that. You know, um, if you go to the Harvard School of Negotiation, they'll talk about body positioning. You know, if you can sit next to the person you're trying to have a negotiation with rather than across, which is more, you know, maybe conflict oriented. Um, I think there's a lot of structural opportunities that don't require somebody waving a big flag or updating their positions on their website, right? That that might facilitate those things. And that's what's so interesting to me about this committee. Now, just for our listeners to give them some background, what's the difference in a select committee and what's special about that kind of committee? Yeah, select committees are considered, uh, uh, they have an expiration date on them. So there are standing committees in Congress, like the Appropriations Committee, which is the other committee on which I serve, or the Ways and Means Committee, or the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. They're there forever, right? Or until Congress decides to change committees. A select committee has an expiration date and is assigned a specific task. So in this Congress, you know, uh, you've seen, for example, the January 6th committee has an assigned topic and a set amount of time. The Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, same thing. And then our committee initially was given one year, uh, either because we were slow or because people liked what we were doing. We got an extension and then a second extension. And so we're continuing to just sort of plug away on, on uh, ideas to make Congress work better. 
Now, you know, coming out of the business world and private sector, you know, we have this idea of continuous improvement. Why wouldn't Congress just keep doing this until Congress is perfect, which will probably be ongoing, right? If you ask me, Congress should always have a function like this, whether it's done through a select committee or becomes part of the function of another committee. But I, I have the same reaction you do. This should not be a once every 20 or 30 years exercise. Congress should be consistently focused on how to do things better. You know, one thing I'm curious about is your background, right? So you are a former consultant. You were at McKinsey. You have a PhD in social policy from Oxford. Uh, this is not your first rodeo in an elected office. You were uh, you served in both houses of the Washington State Legislature um, for a combined seven years before you were elected to the House in uh, 2012. Um, I'm curious to know just personally, how do you think your background has shaped your approach toward Congress and towards this committee in particular? Yeah. Well, it was not a no-brainer for me to run for Congress. Uh, I still remember my predecessor calling me on March the 3rd of 2012 saying, hey, I'm about to announce my retirement and you should think about whether you'd want to do this. And that night, my wife and I went out for dinner for what was the longest and most important dinner of our marriage, I think, to talk about doing this. And we're nerds, so we like wrote the pro and the con list, right? <laughs> and I'll tell you the top of the pro list, and I'll tell you the top of the con list. The top of the pro list was, um, you know, I, I my background was working in economic development after McKinsey and really focusing on how do you create more economic opportunity in places that are being left behind. I grew up in one of those. I grew up in a, a in a timber town that has really struggled, and I felt like uh, serving in Congress would give me an opportunity to help communities like the one in which I grew up. So that was the top of the pro list. There were two things on the top of the con list. Uh, one, I um, had a three-year-old and a six-year-old at the time. They're now twelve and fifteen, and there was some recognition that if I was successful in this undertaking, I'd be signing up for a 3,000 mile commute or according to Alaska Airlines, 2,200 flight miles. Uh, <laughs> and which I think I'm really getting robbed. But um, <laughs> uh, so one, you know, there was recognition that I'd lose time with my kids. And two, Congress is really broken. You know, like a lot of Americans, I followed kind of from a distance what was happening in Washington, D.C., and I found it mostly repellent. You know, that's that's when you want to change the channel. Um, and we sat there in this little Indian restaurant for about four hours. And as they were closing and trying to get us out the door, I kept coming back to the con list and thinking, maybe those are the two reasons to do this, because I got little kids and because it's broken. And recognition that maybe the best thing I can do for their future is do what I can to fix it. So when I got here, you know, I'm having been a management consultant, you know, I don't go to the men's room without a strategic plan. And so we wrote up a strategic plan for our office and tried to identify what do we want to get, what do we want to get done? And we really bucketed into two main buckets. One focused on the top of the pro list. You know, how do we create more economic opportunity for more people in more places? And two, how do we make government work better for people? 
And that has really shaped the work that I do here, certainly on this committee. I'm also part of a bipartisan coalition called the Bipartisan Working Group, which is a group of Democrats and Republicans who just sit down for breakfast each week and try to figure out where we can find some common ground and work on some stuff together. But that was really driven by the choices I made to come here in the first place. I would also add, I think there are... Um, Having um, having been a management consultant, the I think there are practices that just sort of get ingrained in you about how to structure a problem and how to structure solutions that have proved helpful. Yeah, so this has been renewed. This is a second time session or whatever they call it, where you guys are trying to improve stuff. The first committee on modernization of Congress that you were leading came up with 97 different things, which we'll put a link in the show notes for listeners that want to go check that out. But it was stuff about making Congress more effective, you know, streamlined bill writing. They're still running paper, you know, not too many years ago, everybody's killing trees, running paper and versioning was probably a challenge, all that kind of stuff. Um, modernizing tech, you know, cer certain politicians got in trouble with um, tech and maybe they don't have an updated bring your own device policy, you know, stuff that a lot of people in corporate America would take it, you know, for granted that just didn't exist in Congress. When you go through the list, you know, how do they select and pay IT vendors? You know, the list was pretty incredible. Out of those 97 things, how many of those got through? So our first uh, and if I'd been a better chair, we would have gotten to 100. But um, the out of the first 97, about a third have already been implemented or are in uh, some form of implementation. But our goal is to get them all implemented. So we're we're we've got kind of a subgroup that's focused on how do we get all these pucks into the net. Um, we just passed another 20 uh, recommendations as well, and implementation when it comes to a select committee. So we're not a policymaking committee. We can make recommendations that, I guess that's another distinction that I should have mentioned when you ask what, what a select committee is. So unlike other committees where we you know pass something and it goes to the house floor, we pass something and then there's a few different things that could happen. So if we make a recommendation related to rules, we could try to get our recommendations taken up by the Rules Committee and adopted by the House. Some of our recommendations have gone to the House Administration Committee, which sort of inter which is the committee that sort of oversees the internal operations of the institution. Some of our recommendations have gone to the Appropriations Committee and to the subcommittee on the legislative branch, so funding some of these modernization efforts. Some of the things were able to be implemented uh, um, just sort of by um, by leadership. So uh, you you saw a, a couple weeks back the speaker announced that we were going to delink one of our recommendations, which was to delink staff pay uh, from member pay because while members haven't. Uh, have have had a flat salary for I want to say nine or ten years. Staff has two as a consequence of that. So and there's a a staff there's a cap that says a staff member can't get paid more than a congressional member. Well, the impact of that was, as an institution, we were losing a lot of expertise because 
people would hit a cap. And at some point they say, I enjoy public service, but I'm going to go make some, I'm going to go make some money someplace else. So that's an example of something that was able to be implemented because we recommended it and the speaker said, yeah, let's do it. Uh, you know, one of our big recommendations from the last Congress was to set up a process for what we called community project funding, which was really restoring the ability of members of Congress under Article One of the Constitution to appropriate dollars in, in a way that could get investments in their local communities with a lot of transparency and with a lot of uh, uh, backstops to against abuse. But, you know, what you'd seen for the last 10 years was federal agencies earmarking dollars to projects in our communities. And as well-intentioned as they may be, I think members of Congress know their districts better. And uh, so that was one of our recommendations, and that was taken up by the Appropriations Committee. And again, that was that was implemented. So I, I know that was a long answer, but there's there's a lot of ways in which our recommendations have been and will continue to be implemented. And and again, our goal is not to make recommendations that go into a white paper and get stuck up on a shelf. Our our goal here is to make recommendations that make Congress work better and that actually get implemented. Now, there's 535, um, if you count the House and the Senate, right, of you guys. And it's hard for a layperson to get a sense that, you know, I don't meander the halls of Congress, you know, checking in on conversations. But what seems to be the palette for these kinds of bipartisan change. I mean, the media is always going to play the salacious story or, you know, somebody's, you know, you got representatives walking around with their piece strapped to their side or, and somebody's yelling that the president's an idiot. I mean, that can't be the day to day for it's, you can't stay angry that long, right? It's a mixed bag. So in the house, there's 435 members and I think one of the things that complicates the work of our committee and certainly complicates work in Congress is it's not really one institution, right? It's 435 independent contractors, all of whom sort of loosely affiliate with one of two general contractors that are in a you know bloody battle for market share. Sometimes it, it, it feels that way. And that is that complicates the work of our committee. Beyond that, I would say this, there is, like in any institution, you know, there's a good chunk of people who want to figure out how to work together. There's, and then there's extremes of folks who didn't come here to work with other people that came here for the fight, right? And uh, I have been um, heartened by the degree to which members seem invested in the work of our committee. In the last Congress, just as an example, the our vice chair, Tom Graves, and I visited the Republican study group to walk through what we were working on and to take their input. And when we did that, I think I was I became the first Democrat ever invited into the room of the Republican study group. <laughs> you know, we invited and we invited my Republican counterpart into into meetings with the Progressive Caucus and with the New Democrat Coalition. And so we're really trying to uh, understanding that 
a lot of the ways to fix the institution can be driven by listening to the people who work in the institution, right? So we've been we've done a lot of listening sessions with members and with staff uh, and folks outside of the building just to try to get a better sense of what what are some of the things that are broken that need fixing. So your uh, most recent recommendations, which came out not too long ago from the 117th Congress, uh, you had 20 recommendations. And they're in three categories, improving staff recruitment, diversity, retention, and compensation and benefits. That was category one. Then you had professionalized internships and fellowships. And number three, improving accessibility. Uh, you know, what's um, what's your sense of how those are going to be a move towards implementation as kind of question number one? And then question number two is, do you uh, anticipate adding more recommenda- recommendations on maybe to get to your 100, perhaps, in uh, in this round? Yeah, so these these twenty put us at one seventeen. So we're really cooking with <laughs> gas now. But um, I'm really hopeful about some of these recommendations, in part because I I really think a lot of these are no brainers. So let me give you some examples of things that we just passed. I mentioned that Congress, as an institution, is four hundred thirty five independent contractors. That is also true as we staff up our offices. There there isn't any sort of standardization of what does a legislative assistant get paid or what does a scheduler get paid? So one of our recommendations was that there should be a searchable database that provides real-time payroll information so that if you have a vacancy for a staff assistant, you can look at kind of what's what's the going rate for a staff assistant? What's the range? Because right now everybody's kind of flying blind. The value of that is hopefully it escalates pay. And and let me take a step back about why that matters. The average tenure in a congressional office is about three years. And so what you see is just sort of a persistent brain drain out of the institution. And if you go back to core principles, if our core principle is make Congress work better for the American people then you actually have to build up that capacity and you have to build up the brains of the institution. That's problematic if every two or three years the knowledge base is is wiped clean. So one of our goals has been to recruit and retain and have more diverse staff. And some of that's going to be around compensation. There's other ways that people can be compensated beyond just their pay. So we recommended expanding the student loan repayment program to include tuition assistance. I'll give you a quick example. So I had a few years back uh, MLA, which is a legislative assistant who focuses on defense issues, military issues. They wanted to go to night school and, and get a graduate degree in national security policy. There is no, despite the fact that 70% of Fortune 500 companies have tuition assistance programs, there is nothing like that in Congress. There is a, a, a loan repayment program after you're done, but that creates a perverse incentive to leave and come back, right? And again, if our goal is to retain talented people, we ought to, Congress as an institution ought to provide things uh, like that. One of our recommendations was to provide professional certifications so that, you know, and, and and you see sort of the creation of a burgeoning staff academy where people can say, I want to learn about this. 
and the institution is beginning to offer trainings on that front. But actually giving people certification so that if they wanted to advance in a career in Congress, they can kind of collect some professional uh, uh, development opportunities that that include a certification, I think help people advance professionally. That's pretty consistent with what you see in private industry and yet has been missing in in Congress. Um, you know, so those are some of the things that we just passed. And I, I guess I'll mention one other thing. As we did staff listening sessions, I think one of the frustrations for people has been there there are people in management positions in Congress who've never been managers before. And one of our recommendations was that people who are put in a supervisory position should receive formal management training that helps them deal with everything from how to create a, an inclusive work environment to how to be a manager. Uh, and again, that doesn't sound like rocket science, but it's something that doesn't exist currently and I think is really important. So as I look at those 20 recommendations that we just passed, that our committee just passed, I, I think there's some, you know, in, in, to some degree, these this is low-hanging fruit that ought to just be picked. So you mentioned professional development as one piece of this for staff members. It makes me wonder about professional development for members of Congress, right? Um, yeah. Obviously, I've never been in an elected office, um, but my observation, or at least my assumption, is that most of kind of how you learn to do your stuff is through uh, maybe some mentoring on an informal level, right? More senior people kind of telling you how to do things. And then you have the continuity of some staff members who help you kind of see how to do stuff. But would there might there be any value in having that type of development um, on it could be, you know, on various uh, routine things, how to get stuff done, and also maybe some of these cultural norm type things about what it really means to be a member of this institution? What do you think? Yeah, that was one of our recommendations in the last Congress. So we recommended that, again, I, it was strange for me to come to Congress because with the exception of freshman orientation, and I'm happy to talk about freshman orientation if you're interested, that there's really no ongoing professional development. That's it. So I still remember, and that is a contrast. I, you know, I, you mentioned I came out of a state legislature. When I became a committee chair, there was something called the National Conference on State Legislature, State Legislatures. And when I, I became chair of the Higher Education Committee, and I remember reaching out to NCSL saying, so how, to be, how do I be a good committee chair? Now, that was like the early, mid-2000s. Mid and at that time, they sent me a, like their three CD set on how to be a good committee chair, right? And it was, and I listened to it on my drive to Olympia, right? And it was, you know, kind of the how to succeed in business without even trying. It's like step one of being a good <laughs> committee chair, right? Like, and, but I found it really helpful. And that does not, you know, there's required ethics training, uh, now Congress has uh, um, has had some uh, 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 training, um, some additional training, but it's it's more to not run afoul of rules, and it is and it has not been geared toward 
how do you be a better legislator who can get things done for your constituents, right? So there's no training on negotiation or on how to be an effective communicator or those sorts of things. So that was one of our recommendations was to establish that for Congress. Yeah. So we're consultants as well as podcast people. So we totally get what you're doing. And when we looked on uh, June 24th of this year, you had the full committee hearing with rethinking congressional culture lesson uh, lessons from the field of organizational psychology and conflict resolution, where you basically brought in a bunch of experts and said, hey, tell us what we should be doing because we're probably not doing this. You're, you're a McKinsey guy. You would get hired to come in and say, hey, what are we not doing? What do we need to do? The lack of training for managers um, is rampant in the civilian, you know, regular business industry world. It's a monkey see, monkey do approach to leadership. Um, people say, oh, I believe in leadership, not management. And he was like, well, you got to do both, you know. And so it was interesting to see you bring those experts in. Um, how was that received? Uh, was this new information for most of those representatives that were listening? I think that was one of the best hearings we've had. And it was in in part because so much of what's uh, not working in Congress is driven by culture. So uh, to, to some degree, the discussion we had was how do you fix broken culture, which is super complicated, right? Um, the the and we brought in you know a political scientist and we brought in you know Adam Grant from from Wharton and we brought in uh, uh, a woman named Amanda Ripley who's a reporter who wrote a book called High Conflict which I told her I want to become her hype man because uh, I just think it's a terrific book uh, and then we brought in a gentleman who uh, founded the organization Braver Angels and his background was as a family therapist. I mean, it sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, right? A political scientist, an organizational psychologist, and a family therapist walk into a bar. <laughs> um, but, you know, at this point, I'm willing to talk, you know, we've talked to, I have spoken with sports coaches, marriage counselors, you know, at this point, I'm prepared to speak to an exorcist, you know, whatever it takes to figure out how do you have Congress as an institution just function better. And there were some, I think, really useful lessons for, for our committee. And I think it was, that discussion was really well received. Do you want some examples? Yeah, sure. Hit it. Keep going. So I'll give you a couple examples that just come immediately to mind. So I mentioned uh, how um, how Congress is um, how orientation happens. So it's interesting. I was actually talking to a now retired sports coach who had taken over a team that ha had sort of a renowned bad culture, and he turned it around. And I said, "So how? Do, any advice?" And he said, "Well, you set culture with how you bring on new team members." said it's one of the most important things is how do you orient the new team members? And that can really have a profound impact on culture. So let's look at how Congress historically has brought on new team members. Congress does an orientation and literally out of the gate, 
you have members being told, so Democrats get on this bus and Republicans get on that bus. So you're tribal from the beginning. You know, much of the orientation appears to be an exercise in trying to keep Democrats and Republicans from being in the same room with each other, developing relationships. So one of our recommendations was stop doing that, please. <laughs> like, please, like, give people an opportunity to engage one another, which is, again, not to say that Democrats and Republicans are going to agree on everything. That That's not the intent here. But there's got to be a way to have a more civil discourse. And part of that depends on on relationship building and uh, and changing how onboarding happens. Uh, so that's 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 one of the sort of points of discussion, one of the threads that we pulled uh, on the committee. Time is another big challenge. So if you look back pre-pandemic, the year before the pandemic, Congress was in session for 60, uh, 65 full days and 64 travel days. So I want to explain what that means. So generally speaking, I'll fly in on a Monday and the first votes are at 6.30 in the evening. And then you'll have Tuesday and Wednesday full days. And then Thursday last votes are usually noon. And then it like as quickly as people can, it becomes a ghost town. So you've had some years where there's more travel days than there are days, than there are full days. So why is that problematic? Well, it's problematic for a few reasons. One, the work of Congress is supposed to happen in committees. The average member of Congress is on 5.4 committees and subcommittees, all of which meet on the full days. So if you're watching C-SPAN, again, you have too much time on your hands. But if you're watching C-SPAN and you see a committee where, by and large, people aren't there, it's not because they're like not doing their jobs. It's because they have to be in three committees at the same time. That is not very productive. The consequence of that, in fact, is... You see members sort of running from committee to committee, and rather than the committee being a place where you learn and collectively problem solve, it becomes a place where you rush to to give a five-minute speech that you can stick up on YouTube and then rush out the door and get to the next committee. So one of the things that we're looking at is the schedule of the place and the calendar of the place and how, how do you optimize around the use of time better. And that was part of the discussion that we had with the organizational psychologist, which is, you know, to some degree, how, you know, how you spend your day is how you live, right? And how we spend our day is running from place to place, speechifying, not actually trying to listen to each other. So I mentioned that in part because if you watch that committee hearing we had, we didn't have all 12 members there for the full time, but we had 10 there at one time at least. And we're doing something different on our committee as well, rather than giving people, if someone wants their allotted five minutes, they can get it. But we've, what we've tried to do with our witnesses is just have a conversation. And if someone says, that's an interesting thread, I'd like to pull on that, they raise their hand and say, hey, can I be, can I jump in here and ask a question? And then, and you know, and, and so it's, again, we're trying to acknowledge that if we want to change Congress as an institution, you got to start doing things different. And we're trying to do that. What I find so interesting about this is 
all the realm of places of agreement that have nothing to do with the typical policy fights that we'll argue about over barbecue in my neighborhood, right? I, I've never had somebody, how dare they spend more time in a committee? I can't believe this. I'm going to call my representative. And what I'm noticing from the stuff that I've been following online with what you guys are doing is that it's just a target rich of environment of opportunity of stuff that's not even about the normal fights that we have in Congress. Like how many flight and travel days? How do we pass bills? How do we maybe get along a little bit better so we make better decisions? I don't how do how is this just not all over the news right now as probably the only functioning committee going on in the house right now? It's kind of become a, a bit of a running joke. Uh um in the last Congress, I think I was booked to talk about the work of our committee like eight or nine times on cable news. And uh, every time we got canceled because of the news of the day, every time it was it literally became a joke. They were like, you're going to be on MSNBC today. And I said, I'll bet you I'm not, you know, <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I do think it is. And, and, and listen, there there have been. Folks who've, you know, Paul Kane uh, uh, has been tracking the work of our committee pretty well, and the and certainly the the uh, Capitol Hill newspapers, the Hill and Roll Call and Bloomberg have have followed this the the committee's work pretty closely. But we're clearly not a, you know, we're not we're we're not juicing uh, uh, C-SPAN's ratings substantially, and we're not a viral phenomenon on social media. In part because what gets coverage and what goes viral is the fight, right? And we're really trying not to do that. Um, interestingly enough, in the in the hearing that we had with organizational psychologists and others, you know, part of the discussion was how do you get around? You know, uh, Amanda Ripley in her book has this concept that I, I thought was really thoughtful. She so she calls them con conflict entrepreneurs, people who profit off of creating conflict and. You know, Washington, D.C. is full of that. Right. And so part of our discussion as a committee is how do you how, how do you how do you change that dynamic where the people who are trying to just get pucks in the net for their constituents are getting, you know, are, are getting maybe a little bit more attention or or or, or positive feedback rather than just the folks who are breaking dishes. Did anybody say you should come in without pants regularly? <laughs> that would probably make the news. <laughs> that, that, that would make the news. Uh... You know, one thing that I think was really interesting, and I encourage our listeners to all go check out the uh, the YouTube clip of this um, this particular full committee hearing that we've been talking about on rethinking congressional culture. Uh, it's two hours long. I watched the entire thing. I listened to it and. Well, there were a few things that I found really interesting. One was the content, things that we've been talking about here. How do you change culture? How do you have the right types of conflict and less of the, the bad conflict? Another thing that I thought was really interesting is something you alluded to earlier, which is how the committee itself behaved in that setting, right? So just for our audience, you can picture um, a number of members of Congress sitting around a table that's arranged basically in a square so that there's no one really at the head of the table. Some people have their jackets on, some have their jackets off. Like you mentioned, no one's having to beg for time. If there's you know something that they want to say, they just kind of raise their hand and would jump in. It was a 
if you didn't know better, you would think that this was just a group of people who are trying to learn things and do some good work and try to figure out how to solve some problems. Along with that, I wonder if some of the ways in which you have been successful in getting that group to work together could become a story that um, maybe could guide some of the norms elsewhere in Congress, right? So here's how we've kind of figured this out a little bit in our committee. Here's some things that you might try in these other committees or elsewhere to help things be less co contentious, help people get along better um, and be more civil. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, we actually made a recommendation in the last Congress that committees and subcommittees should experiment with different different ways of operating. And so we've tried to put that into practice. So this notion, for example, of not just allocating every member five minutes to speechify, but rather to have a conversation, to use committee time to actually try to learn something. I mean, I, I, it is, it is challenging when you bring in someone who has expertise that oftentimes in congressional hearings, rather than trying to pull their expertise, we're listening to folks, you know, kind of opine so that they can get a clip on social media, right? Um, so I, I actually think, you know, particularly in the subcommittee, subcommittees are smaller and I think lend themselves to that type of uh, collaborative approach in a, in a far better way. I think that's something that we could see uh, really enhanced. The same thing around, and I, I know I mentioned this previously, but having a bipartisan agenda setting retreat is important and it can be hard. Listen, I want to acknowledge that there are dramatic differences between Democrats and Republicans on a whole lot of issues. You know, a big part of my job is to stand my ground, particularly when there's something that is something that that could impact my constituents for good or for bad. But the other part of my job is trying to find common ground when we can. And so having part of the way you do that is by actually having collaboration and discussion. I found that agenda setting treat to be retreat to be very helpful. And I'll, I'll mention one other thing. Um, we did something in our agenda setting retreat this year that was hard. And, you know, at the beginning of the Congress, I reached out to the 11 members of our committee and just because we got some new members of the committee this year and said, you know, what do you want to get done on the committee? What do you care about? And I was perhaps not overly surprised that in seven of those 11 conversations, the events of January 6th came up. And it became very clear that that could be a barrier to our committee moving forward in a productive way. And in fact, you've seen that on a number of committees where January 6th has become to some degree, and I don't want to make light of it at all, but the the it's become, it, it, it has the potential to become that argument you got into with your partner where five years later, where you can't decide what to have for dinner, it gets thrown back in your face. And so part of our agenda setting retreat this year was we brought in an outside conflict resolution expert who actually kind of walked us through how are folks feeling about this and how, to, how, how might that inform or make more challenging the work of our committee. But I think the consequence of actually walking through that together is that we sort of, at least on our committee, has have exercised that demon, which again is not to say that there aren't strong feelings about it and still some 
bruised feelings about it. But I think we've, at least within our committee, figured out a path forward. Right. So one of the things that's kind of bandied about and, you know, the political intelligentsia conversation, you know, like the Ezra Kleins of the world, so to speak, they talk about having stronger parties will help reinforce better norms within their constituents. Um, do you think that the parties really exert that kind of control? I know, I remember watching Mitch McConnell, you know, ask his members certain things and and it didn't seem like he could really get a whole lot of consensus and behavioral norms from his members. Um, how is that working between individual behaviors and maybe that, you know, you're talking about the larger contractors, the R and the Ds there? It's a great question. And I, I want to give you a, a thoughtful answer to it. Um, I think it is challenging to have sort of a binary negotiation on any topic. When the parties are increasingly diverse, there is a difference between, I mean, diverse is the wrong way to put it. There is a breadth of ideology within both parties. Uh, there is a difference between, you know, a Fred Upton, who we had come and testify at our committee, as a good example of legislating. You know, we had a, a hearing on how do you make committees function better? And we had Diana DeGette and Fred Upton, who worked together on a very significant bill around funding for the NIH called the 21st Century Cures Act which was really a best case example on how to legislate. You know, there's a big difference between that example and some of the stuff you see, for example, from the Freedom Caucus, right? Which, you know, is often here to kind of gum up the works. And, and I don't say that casting aspersions. I think they would say we're here to gum up the works. So the the notion that if all Republicans voted the way Kevin McCarthy told them to and all Democrats voted the way that Nancy Pelosi told them to, the place would function better. I'm not sure that's particularly realistic. So the question becomes, in light of that, I, I really do think it's, you know, I mentioned it's 435 independent contractors that are really kind of loosely affiliated <laughs> with the two general contractors. And on a different, any, pick your, pick your issue, you may see folks say, well, I, I can partner with, with, with the other party on this or that. And depending upon the issue, it may be a different cast of characters. You know, there may be folks who are willing to support that. There are Republicans who will occasionally support the Democratic position on prevailing wage, for example, on the treatment of workers. You saw some Republicans, though not as much as I wish, you know, support the Equality Act to protect the rights and defend the rights of the LGBTQ community. You know, so on any given issue, you may see uh, folks kind of cross the aisle. Um, and I think that's okay, right? Like that, we, it's far less than you saw historically, where there was more ideological diversity. A, a, a liberal Northeastern Republican was more progressive than a Southern Democrat back in the day. Yeah, you know, I see a lot of people looking for, well, you see these problems and you just try to wrap your head around it. And I see where people say, well, we need a stronger party system, more falling in line with the voice at the top. And then I've seen everything from where one one year it was all the presidential candidates broken up as if they were British parliamentarians, right, where you have your constitutionalist party and 
And I don't because of the diverse ideologies that you find within representatives, I feel like we kind of already do have a bunch of of parties. And that's why your group interests me is because it's people coming around good ideas that aren't in a kind of binary conflict kind of situation, which is a best practice out of negotiations, right? You try to find common ground, look for that. Even if we never moved anywhere on some of the biggest root fights that we have as Americans, there's all this zone for agreements and good legislation that can go forward there. So I'm glad to hear you say that. Do you find that people are having, as the newer freshmen come in and as, you know, there's turnover and representatives. Are is there more of that? I'm an individual representing my constituency and less of a party identity, or is the party identity still strong because of maybe structural fundraising type things? I think it's a little bit of both. I think by and large, people come here to represent their district. And inevitably that looks different depending upon where you're coming from. You know, we're talking about kind of organizational culture. I think one of the most interesting things that I've witnessed, uh, the Bipartisan Policy Center, uh, which is a think tank here in D.C., um, organizes exchanges, congressional exchanges. It's kind of a home and away between a Democrat and a Republican. I actually think it's really interesting what they're doing because so I did I did one and I had a Republican from Arkansas, Steve Womack, who's become a good friend, come out to my district and I went to Arkansas. And it was really valuable because I think part of the way you get a better understanding of where people are coming from is to understand where people are coming from. You know, I, I took him up Hurricane Ridge and the head of the superintendent of our national park talked about the maintenance backlog in the park system. And as we're heading back down the mountain, he said, gosh, Kilmer, now I understand why you keep talking about the maintenance backlog in the park system. Right. And we took him up a crane in a crane at the port of Tacoma. You know, and as we left, he was like. Hell, now I care about freight mobility in the Puget Sound region, you know, because they said, like, here's how many containers come through our port and end up in Arkansas. And here's how many containers leave Arkansas and come through our port and go to the rest of the world. And he said, gosh, all of a sudden I care about your stuff now. Right. And I don't know if that was directly responsive to, to your question. I guess what, what I'm getting at is people come to Congress with a variety of uh, agenda. and. I think by and large, people come because they want to get stuff done. There are outliers, right? You know, I, there, there are some high profile freshmen right now um, who want to go viral on social media or th that type of thing. That may be their priority more than, hey, I want to figure out how to get some pucks in the net. Yeah, well, people think that we're immune to that. Anybody that grows up in the social media era knows like, even my kid wants to be a YouTube star. So when when we see this kind of behavior, it's pretty obvious. I think I don't think a lot of people are getting deceived by that. Maybe some. But one thing that was told to me earlier in my career that really bears out is that one way that you build trust is through delivery. And when I'm watching the work that you and your committee members are doing is in a toxic landscape of shenanigans you guys are being really stone cold professionals. You're rolling your sleeves up. You did difficult work around a attack on our capital with a conflict management person. That is just insanely awesome. And I just want to say to our listeners, like this is what leadership looks like. 
And I think people like Representative Kilmer and the others on his committee, really, you guys are going to build trust with the American people because day in and day out in a committee that's not on TV, you guys are delivering uh, for the Americans. Thank you. No, I appreciate I appreciate that. And, you know, we've got a lot of work to do. I think part of the reason you've seen our committee get extended now a couple times is just a recognition that we're on the right track and that there's there's plenty meat on the bone when it comes to doing things to make Congress work better. And we're going to we're going to try to get at as much as we can within the time our committee exists. So we've talked a lot about your committee. We've talked about the great work you've been doing. Um, and maybe there's some Americans and we have international listeners, too. Maybe they're thinking about their uh, political processes as well. What would you say to those folks out there who are like, this sounds amazing. How can we support this? How can we maybe um, make sure that it continues, make sure that the recommendations that this committee makes actually be implemented? What would you say to folks who are curious about that? A few things. One, I encourage people to follow the work of the committee. Uh, you mentioned our website is modernizedcongress.house.gov, and we've got social media sites, and we put up our hearings on on our site. So one, just staying informed. Two, every person who's listening to your podcast who lives in the United States is represented by somebody. And I encourage them to reach out to their member of Congress and 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 really to engage them on the work of fixing Congress. I think one of the most important things we can do is just have the institution function better. And I think it's fair for uh, for, for constituents to say, hey, you know, how <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, how invested are you in making Congress work better for the American people? And then three, we have on our website the ability for the public to engage to if they have ideas, if they have suggestions, uh, we're 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 trying to kind of crowdsource I mentioned we've been pulling on experts, but among the experts are just the American people know how things ought to work and how things shouldn't work. My observation is the American public is is exhausted with the dysfunction in Washington, D.C., and they're right to be exhausted. And I think the citizenry at large is and should be as invested as anybody in seeing this committee work. Well, I'll be sure to let my representative, Dave Joyce, who is on the committee, uh, to uh, let him know that he should continue being on the committee. So uh, thank you for that. And I, I suppose I'll just, as we close here, um, is there anything else that you would like for our listeners to know about what you're doing, about the modernization of Congress? We'll let you have the last word. You know, there's a few things that kind of come to mind, and I, I appreciate your feedback on on the work of the committee let me say a few things. One, it is definitely not sexy to be an institutionalist, right? It's it it's it, it is not viral to be trying to fix the institution. I mentioned with great respect my former vice chair Tom Graves who was I think really constructive and his seat uh was is now filled by Marjorie Taylor Greene who is one of those viral freshmen um but who has a very different approach to the job than Tom did, right? And I, I don't say that with disrespect. I think that is just a, tr a truism. And I, I keep coming back to when I think about the work of the committee and just efforts to make institutions function better. You you want to be what uh, former Secretary Gardner referred to as a, a loving critic. You don't want to be an uncritical lover. You don't want to 
love the institution so much that you avoid giving it the sort of life-giving criticism that's required to improve. And you don't want to be an, un an unloving critic, right? You don't want to just treat the institution like the pinata at the party, which is easy, right? The, the most popular thing I can do back home is bash Congress. And there's a lot of reasons to bash Congress. But I think what you've seen, and you mentioned David Joyce as your uh, member of Congress, I think he's a great example of this as someone who is a loving critic of the institution, who is willing to criticize it, and there's plenty of reasons to do so, but in a way that's really focused on making the institution function better, not trying to burn it to the ground. And I hope as people sort of follow the work of our committee that that's the lens through which they can do that. Um, that's certainly the lens through which I've engaged on this committee. You know, I think we really owe it to the American public to have a Congress that works better for them. And I know that I owe that to to my two kids. So that's why I keep doing this work and appreciate your uh, your interest in our committee's work. Well, Representative Kilmer, thank you so much for being a part of the Indigo podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Indigo podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com, where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.